People do not need to be fixed. They need to feel heard. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. What up? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a total shit show, and I am the captain of this shit show ship. And this is where we talk about what the hell to do when you realize that your childhood screwed you up way more than you thought it did. So today... We're in for a goodie. Today, we are joined by Michelle Chalfant. She is an author. She is a therapist. She is a coach. She is the host of the podcast, The Adult Chair, which I'm sure many of y'all listen to. It's She's had it for many, many years. It's an amazing podcast. And she has dedicated many, many years of her life and profession to helping shit shows like us. So we're talking about her childhood, we're talking about enmeshment, we're talking about using plant medicine to treat complex trauma, and we're also talking about parts work. So you're actually going to hear, she did a little parts work exercise with me in my interview with her. So I included that. I did you know, cut there. It was longer than what you're going to hear. There were a lot more, you know, pauses and breaks which I got rid of because, I mean, I figured you weren't really trying to listen to a podcast where it's just silent for (laughs) long periods of time. So I edited that out for you all. It's a great interview. So let's just get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the joint shit show. This is my online support community where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. Well, actually four four weekly Zoom support groups. This is where you can connect with other fellow shit shows. This past Saturday for my shit show Saturday episode, I included a portion of a recording from the CSA group in the community. So within the shit show, we have a separate, you know, sub community that is for childhood sexual abuse survivors. And they have a meeting once a week. And I included a portion of their meeting from last Wednesday where they shared about what it meant to them to be a part of this group. And it is an extremely powerful, powerful episode. It's quite amazing what what they're doing in there. So yeah, so damn the joint shit show, okay? Yes, you the person that has been wanting to join for forever. Let's just cut the crap now. Let's just cut the crap. And damn the joint shit show. See the link in my bio. Next, give me a little follow on Insta and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you. Love you all. All right, y'all. Adult child and adult chair. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh-huh. I love it. I'm so glad we got to connect. Where do I want to begin? What was the moment that you realized that your childhood fucked you up a lot more than you thought it did? Oh boy. I want to say probably when I was in college, sometime like, you know, 18 to 20 ish. I remember just because I was doing an undergrad in psychology. So I started learning about like, oh wait, 
that's healthy. What I did wasn't so healthy or how I, you know, the, some of the things that happened in my child, childhood were not so healthy. And that's when I did a lot of reflecting. And my nature in itself, though, is to reflect on myself and my past. So I do that anyway. I think as a therapist, like, and a coach, I just naturally do that. But I definitely remember in college having some epiphanies thinking, wow, this was really messed up. That that was messed up. That was messed up. That was really unhealthy. And yeah, I would say probably like around 18, 19, probably like 20 ish somewhere. Is there a pivotal moment? Like, do you remember a particular specifically in, in your less about your childhood itself, more so about the way in which it impacted you and your behavior? Codependency. That would be the word that comes to mind. Like, and I think about if you Google codependency, my picture is probably there because that is when I realized like, wow, yeah. That childhood of mine created this person that was anxious, so afraid to like not help and fix everybody. And I was overextended. I was exhausted. I lived with chronic fatigue. I was, let me say it like this. I was chronically fatigued versus true chronic fatigue. But yeah, that is really what I realized is I I at a really young age, I was taking care of everybody. I remember my first experience when I was six. My mother had gotten up from the dinner table. We lived in in the summers with my, it was my mom and my dad and I, and then my sister came along six years later, but it was my mom and dad and I, and my dad had this twin brother that hated my mother, identical twins. So anyone that knows identical twins, and if you don't know identical twins, they're, they're, especially when they're raised together, they're dressed alike, the whole thing. He was over all the time. We lived together in the summer at a summer home on the lake and my grandmother was also part of the the summer scene and he hated my mom. He was awful to my mom. And I remember him saying something really ugly to my mom at dinner one night. My dad loved us, but didn't set boundaries when it came to him, his twin. He just couldn't do it. So my mom had gotten up from the dinner table and she went in the bedroom and she was crying. And I remember at six years old, I walked into the bedroom and I was like, touching her hair, like, don't cry, mommy. It's okay. And that is the earliest memory I have of like, okay. Like I I go back to that memory a lot. Like, wow, that was the day I feel like I really lost or I kind of hung up my childhood and I decided to become an adult and see you later, a little Michelle. I've got a lot of work to do around here. I got to take care of everybody. So yeah. I'm curious. Was there a moment for you where you kind of switched into a scapegoat type role or were you always hero child? I believe I was always hero child. Well, yeah, it's funny because my uncle was such an ass and so just did not like my mom. And he would do all these very passive aggressive things. And I would be the one a lot like you, I was drinking and doing drugs at an earlier age. And I had a lot of anger, a lot of anger. And I'm the only one that really stood up to him. My uncle was a rager, so I probably learned from him. He's got all the power. I need to be, you know, unconsciously. That's what I want to be more like because everyone else is getting walked on in this family. So, yeah. So I'm the one that started standing up to him and then he would bring his, his energy down. You know, he would, oh no, it's okay, sweetheart. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't fucking talk to my mother like that. And you don't treat us like this. I was so angry. So yeah, I I think maybe even definitely was the hero to my mom. And then maybe the scapegoat for my dad, to be honest with you. Yeah. So my dad, it was like, it's not uncle Don, it's his drinking. (laughs) You know, it's like, no, it's actually 
Uncle Don. Like, no. So I realized, I just realized this recently because my dad was the opposite of a narcissist, like absolutely not at all. However, there was some gaslighting. There was definitely some gaslighting. And I thought, oh my gosh, because he would say things like that. Like Uncle Don's a wonderful man. It's the alcohol. When he drinks, he becomes like the devil. And that's not him. That's the devil coming through. And I'd be like, what the hell? What? What are you talking about? No, not true. So yeah. Did he ever get married? Your uncle? Nope. No. Mm-mm. No. You know, my, my poor grandmother, he had like a, they had a warped sense of reality, like thinking they were bigger and better than not my dad. It was more my grandmother and my uncle it was very warped. So my uncle, you know, didn't want anyone that was, as my grandmother would say, was used. I could get into all kinds of family crap. Like it's like whacked. I'm like, what? He's 40, 40 something or 50 something or 60. I remember he brought to dinner one night, like he was probably in his fifties and he brought a girl that was younger than me. And I was like 22 or 23. And I'm like, this is so gross. But again, he was like, yep, I don't want to be with anyone that's, you know, been with other people. It was just weird. It was just a very whacked out sort of reality. So no. Yeah, I know. So gross. And then what about, you said you had a sister. Yeah. Six years younger. Yeah. And what role do you think she played within the family? You know what? Because there was such an age gap. I mean, six years is a lot, honestly. And Mm -hmm. I went from being the codependent caretaker of my mom. And then she came up behind me doing the same kind of thing. And you know, let me please dad and let me be the codependent to my mom and we'll take care of my mom. And she and I became very, very strong, which is Mm -hmm. a benefit of it. Honestly, I feel really independent. I can do my own thing. Very strong, but also very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Again, there was the the loss of childhood because we've got to be the caretakers. We've got to keep everything copacetic and quiet. My uncle was in, you know, drank too much alcoholic grandmother was too. My dad drank but wasn't an alcoholic, but he did drink. Like there was daily drinking, maybe a glass of wine. I I wouldn't classify him as a, an alcoholic, but uncle, my uncle was for sure. Like definitely. And so was grandma. And and, and again, I say that even though they're the extended family being Italian, we're together all the time. Like they were together numerous times a week. They all, it wasn't just my mom and my dad, like at sporting events, the whole family would come, right? Aunts, uncles, cousins, like, so we kind of all, you know, there was so much enmeshment and codependency in the family. My sister and I did not have a prayer, you know? So, so it was just a lot of dysfunction, a lot of alcohol, a lot of lost childhoods. It's just, it's just how it was in the family. And again, going through it, I didn't know that that wasn't normal, but then getting a psychology degree and going on to become a therapist, I'd look back and like, oh my goodness. Like my father was so enmeshed with his family and his identical twin brother. They dressed alike into their seventies. Really? Yeah. And so my father passed away. So yeah, there wasn't a prayer. Like that's all I saw was people enmeshing and taking care of each other in a very unhealthy way. So, but honestly, I see it now as a blessing because I can spot codependency. I can sniff it out a mile away. So when I worked with clients for all those years, I could just, I'm like, Oh, there it is. (laughs) I I, I know what that is. Been there, done that. So that's the blessing of it now. But of course, going through that, I wouldn't say there was any blessing, but on the other side of it now, because of what I do for my career, I'm so happy now that I have, 
you know, recovered from all of that. Now I can see it and I can help other people because I really, I truly have walked in their shoes. So, so many people's shoes. Yeah. What do you know about your dad's childhood? I mean, again, he was raised as one person with his brother. They had a younger brother, salt of the earth for a father. And his mother, my grandmother was, they said a wonderful person. And then when my grandfather died at a really young age, my grandmother got very bitter and not a friendly person. So my father always felt the need to take care of his family and my grandmother included. So yeah, but I mean, a good childhood, but he was raised as a twin, not as an individual. So it was really unhealthy, really unhealthy. And they say now, of course, I've, I've done some research on twins, but they should not, if they cannot be in the same bedroom, you should not dress them alike every single day. You should give them separate identities. And my dad just didn't have that. He was raised the opposite way. He was raised to be pushed together and he wasn't, I mean, his, he had a name of course, but he was, he was called the twins. Like, oh, have the twins come. It wasn't like have Tom and Don come. So yeah, I mean, good childhood. Other, otherwise, there wasn't a lot of drinking even. Like my, I don't think my grandfather even drank. So good until my grandfather died. That's when everything really kind of went downhill. I think that a lot of people don't understand um, how in, enmeshment is trauma. Yeah. Think that there's yeah. a lot of like a lot of people who don't understand, yeah. Just they might even see it as as being, I don't know if I want to say healthy, but like loving. Oh yeah, because I I do think that that is one that's like a little bit more insidious. I think it's extremely common, but maybe not discussed as much as being truly trauma. Yeah, uh, kind of explain that some. Yeah, it's definitely traumatic because we don't know who we are without that other person. It's almost like I, I get the visual of like a hose or a cord or something attaching us. And it's a short cord that is attaching us to another human. And it's hard to breathe without them. It's hard to make a move without them. It's hard to think without them. It's hard to live without them and their opinions and running our life we have to run our lives like through them looking for their feedback, not knowing what to do without that other person. It's just, it's, it's, it's so dysfunctional. It's so incredibly dysfunctional. It's debilitating would be the word that I would use. Even I know like with my mom, because it's, again, this is all I saw growing up, you know, and I can't even imagine if back in the day there were cell phones, like when I was younger, because it would have been blowing up with family drama all the time. Like, what do you think of this? Can you believe it was, always talking about other people. That's how I grew up. Not me, but them, not my mom and my dad. They were just sort of there, but it was more the other uncles and grandma and, and, and the uncles. But yeah, it's, it's like, you can't breathe without that other person. And I see this a lot with now people that say that have elderly parents that they are enmeshed with, you know, maybe their mother made them the hero. Like my father was the hero in his family. So there's a big, big, big weight on his shoulders to be the hero for everybody and never to leave my grandmother. After my grandfather died, he would not leave my grandmother. He always wanted to take care of her. The twin brother, the uncle lived with and took care of his mother, even though they, they couldn't stand each other. They used to fight all the time. But again, it's like my father couldn't separate himself from other. And that's what's so traumatic. He didn't know who he was without his brother, without his mother. So he would choose them over us, especially over my mom. 
there was so that was trauma for sure for my mom, for me, my sister, everybody. But yet what was traumatic is that it was so confusing because I'm like, but he loves us. He loves me. I felt so much love for my dad, but yet why are you choosing with this guy that's drunk, angry, and abusive toward mom? Like I couldn't comprehend that. It just didn't make sense to me because I felt so loved from him too, but I wasn't protected. Twisted, right? My, my sister wants to write a yes. screenplay. She's like, boy, this is twisted our whole childhood, you know? Oof. It Well, it really is. And I think it makes it even more difficult to be able to identify and see the ways in which it's negatively impacting our lives as adults when it's, but, but it, but it was loving. I was loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about this? What about from the perspective of where do you see like experiencing, you know, enmeshment as a child? You know, I think that sometimes that can result in a child then growing up to have a deep fear of enmeshment versus they could also grow up and have an extremely deep fear of abandonment. Yeah. You see kind of what dictates how that goes. What do I see that dictates how that goes? As far as like, why do at times, like what, what, what would cause one to have that experience and have it result in a fear of enmeshment and, and, you know, getting close versus the fear, the deep fear of abandonment. I think a lot of it has to go back to our attachment wounding too. And of course your attachment style can change over time. So I found with myself, I was anxiously attached And then because of the enmeshment, of course, I went into avoidance. It was like, I don't want anyone to ever suck me dry like I felt in my family. So then Mm. up comes the avoidance. So I was more of a disorganized, attached person or kid because I wanted love. I wanted connection, really deep connection with other. Yet when people get too close, I'm like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) take a step back, right? So yeah, so I love studying the attachment wounding aspect of how we grow up and who we become knowing again, it can change. Thank God, because I was able to really work through that disorganized and really it comes down to like, can you feel your emotions? How does it make you feel when that person feels like they're too far away? Can you sit in those emotions? And then how does it make you feel when someone's coming in a healthy way towards you and wants to connect in a healthy way? Can you feel those emotions? I had to sit in a lot of uncomfortableness and a lot of anxiety and fear and overwhelm. And I've learned now how to hold myself stable and solid. And now I'm able to thank God to have those secure attachments. But I, it was not pretty in my dating life. And even in my, the younger, when I first got married, it was like, I was ping-ponging all over the place. Like, you know, that's not, it was not good, put it that way. Did you show up differently in like female friendships as you did in romantic relationships? Yeah, for sure. In romantic relationships, there was definitely, and I would, I was in love with different guys. You know, I had long-term relationships, but I couldn't understand why when they would want to get married, I'd say, yeah, I think we need a break. Let's, mm-hmm. let's break up. Or when they wanted to spend all their time with me, I'd go, yeah, let's, we need to, we need to pause everything in female relationships. They were definitely healthier, but what I found more with females is when they would want to spend all their time with me and really fully like get close all the time, I would go into a little bit more of avoidance. Like it was too uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't feel like comfortable now, of course this has all changed, but yeah, in the beginning I was like, Ooh, hold on, hold on now. 
too close. When you started studying this in school, so when was it, when did you start, when did you start your, your psychology degree? Oh Lord, the (laughs) eighties. That's how old I am. You look too young for that. Yeah. I graduated high school in 86. 86. So what I'm 55 for those of you doing the math. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a former CPA and I still can't do it in my head. Yeah. Like, wait, how, (laughs) how old is she? Yeah. Yeah. Back in the eighties. And by the way, how they teach now. Well, that's what I want to get into. Oh God. No, thank God. You know, think the thing for me is I'm, there's something about me. Like I love to learn. I immerse myself in learning and I've done that my, most of my life. So I remember going through college. I was like, well, what, you know, nobody talked about attachment that, I mean, just, we didn't talk about it. Like there wasn't even a thing. It might've been a thing, but it didn't come up in my degree. I went on to get my master's degree. It was the same kind of thing. Like just, okay. But so there wasn't a lot of training or learning about it. Like there were some things that I was like, oh yeah, that's me. But I learned a lot more throughout the ne- the last 25 years of my own personal journey. When I, to maintain your counseling license, you have to get X number of hours every two years. I love all this stuff. So I'd go back. I've, I have all these trainings and now an attachment theory among a list that's a mile long of other things, but that's where I did so much of my work and I, and personal work. I love doing personal work and intensives and things like that. So that's been more helpful than college, but I know now that the degrees are very different and you learn a lot of that now. Yeah. I mean, when do you remember learning about like complex trauma and complex PTSD for the first time? No, I, I remember, gosh, it was probably 15, 20 years ago. I remember I have this memory for some reason. I remember standing in one of my houses when I lived in Nashville and I opened up the refrigerator and it was like, it just dumped into my, from my unconscious mind into my conscious mind. And I thought, oh, wow, I have PTSD. And again, trauma has not been talked about the way it is now. 10, 15 years ago, not everyone was talking about trauma and gaslighting and narcissism. Nobody. I mean, very few people. And I remember thinking, what? That's weird. How do I have trauma? I'm like, I know I have some from Uncle Don, but interesting. So then I started delving. I don't know where it came from. And literally, I can still see it now. I was opening up the refrigerator. I was like, I have PTSD. I'm like, how is it showing up? I don't like, what does that mean? Hmm. What what the hell was in that fridge? Who the hell knows? I don't know. I don't know. Like it was like something got dislodged or it was some sort of psychic awareness or it was like, yeah, go, go work on that. So that's when I started really looking a lot more into trauma and what's, what's there. Like, why is that occurring to me now? So everything happens for a reason. I believe like it just didn't come out of nowhere. It was there for a reason. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. It's gotta be so interesting. So when did you develop your adult chair model? It's been about, gosh, 10 plus years now. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And what do you feel like prior to that? Like when you think about, so when you, when you first started your practice and before you started learning a a lot more about this, did you still, were you still working with people on the same kind of issues? Always. Okay. Yeah. Like what I do right now is what, and you know, here's the thing we practice and help others with what we've walked through in our own lives. That's really what it is. So codependency is probably one of my favorite things to talk about on my podcast, the adult chair. <laughs> like I think I've done, I just told, so I just had to look the other day, something like 25 podcasts on codependency alone, because I'm so passionate about helping others. 
And especially with that specifically, that specific issues, because so much goes into codependency, you know, it's your loss of your true self. Many of us live with anxiety or depression. Uh, we have, don't have boundaries. Uh, we lack empowerment. So, so much goes into that one little term. And by the way, I hate labels. I do not like labels, but I remember learning about that term way back when, and it helped me to make sense of who I am and not who I am. I didn't say that right. What all my symptoms were like, what, what was going on within me? Then I had a goal. I was like, oh, this makes sense now. Now I know what, what I can start working on. So I started working on all those different aspects of self. That was a big part of my healing journey for sure. That's how I found felt when I found out about the term adult child. Yeah. You know, like I, yeah. so I, was, I was nine years sober when I realized that I was an adult child and that I was suffering from complex PTSD. I mean, I spent years having, just thinking I was completely nuts, like yeah. in an oh, yeah. yep. um, and such a relief to, to be able to, you know, put a finger on something. And I just think that there's so many people, especially people with like long-term sobriety that are still suffering so much mm -hmm. who realize that it's unresolved trauma. Yes, for sure. For sure. So I'd love to talk to you some about what is presently showing up for me and what I'm still dealing with. And it is all about this self-sabotage, procrastination, mm -hmm. just this addiction to, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I do know. This yeah. Inability to fucking adult. Yeah. The thing that I'm really trying to connect with more and is I'm trying to dive more into parts work and I'm not sure how much, yeah. how much that's been prevalent for you or helpful, but. Oh, that's part of the adult chair model is working with the parts of self. There's so many because it's not just us in there. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it, it's this realization that there, that there's a part of me that thinks that by procrastinating and self-sabotaging that somehow that's protecting me in some way. Okay. I want to ask you a question. You said it was a procrastinator part. Yes. So when you think about who was the other part, the procrastinator part was the other one. You said self-sabotage. Yeah. Okay. Which is all tied together, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. So when you think about, so which one feels bigger procrastinator or self-sabotage? Procrastinator. Okay. So when you think about procrastinator, where do you feel it in your body? I feel it on the tops of my arms and on the tops of my legs. Okay. So just, do you want to do it right now and just sure. see what we can find out about it? Mm -hmm. So think about, think about the part of you that procrastinates and let your awareness drop down below your chin. You might even think about a t something that you are procrastinating procrastinating about right now. And then where do you feel it in your body? If you do a body scan from head to toe, very, very, very slowly. It's in the top. It's in the top of my uh, forearms. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it is on the tops of my thighs, like from knee to like about, I don't know, six inch up my thigh on the top. Okay. So Which is when you feeling 
when so when you think about your forearms or your thigh and your thighs, which one feels a little bit more intense? It could just be one percent or half a percent in more intense. Arms. Arms. Okay. And is there one arm over the other arm that feels a little bit more intense? Hmm. Hmm. Maybe left arm a little bit. Okay, great. So let's just go ahead and tune into the left arm. Just give it your, just draw your awareness there. And then take a slow, deep breath too. When you're doing that with your belly, very, very slow. So as you tune into this left arm, ask this part of you and really clean your brain. I don't, 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 it doesn't have to sound like anything you've ever heard in your past, but let's get really curious. So ask this part of you what its purpose is. Just tune into the left arm only. That's to keep you small. Mm, so thank it. So just say, thank you for keeping me small. Small. Mm -hmm. Thank you for keeping me small and sit with it. Why don't you go ahead and, and introduce yourself and let this part of you know who you are. Just say, hey, it's me, Andrea. Andrea. Mm -hmm. It's nice to meet you. What's it say back? Nothing. Okay. Can you let it know that you're, that you're interested to get to know it a little better and that you're really, really happy that it's here and that it's done such a great job. Here to get to know you better. Mm -hmm. It's really nice to meet you. And I'm here to, to learn more about you. Mm hmm. You're glad it's been doing a good job of keeping you small. And it's good. It's a good thing. What's it say back? It doesn't trust me. Say, okay, thank you. Is there anything else? Mm hmm. It doesn't really want to be there. Ask it where, what's where, what's, where does it not want to be? Mm. It's just, it says it feels trapped. Mm. Say, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. It's got, it's got a lot of jobs. It's got a lot of, a lot going on. Thank it for all the hard work that it's doing for you. Its intentions are so good. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for mm -hmm. all the hard work. Yeah. I know that your intentions are good. What's it say? Anything? It says it's good to be noticed. Hmm. But yeah, I notice you. And take hmm. take another deep breath. How old how old are you today? 34. 34. Okay. So ask it, ask this part of you. Ask it how old it thinks you are. And, and wait for the answer. It'll come. Go the first thought that comes to you. Eight. Eight? Uh -huh. Yeah. Say thank you. Thank so you. Just thank it again. And take a breath again. Slow, deep breath. Say, actually. Actually, I'm 34. 
I'm 34. I'm not eight. I've grown up. You've grown up. I've made it out of the house. I've made it out of the house. Yeah. I'm 34. I'm an adult. I'm 34 and I'm an adult. Yeah. Now take a breath and then let's just pause and let's notice again what's happening to your arm and either the sensation or what does it say back? It feels a lot warmer. Mm. Let it know that you're here and that you're here for it. Ask it if it would be willing to pay attention to how you live your life now. Are you willing to pay attention to how I live my life now? Mm -hmm. So that you can actually give it the experience of who you are today as a healthier adult than you were when you were eight mm -hmm. and that you can actually manage and, and, and take care of your, care of your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want you to watch. So, you know, that I'm not eight and watch how I manage my life as an adult. Cause I'm willing. And what happens? What happens now? Would it be able to give you a little bit of space so you can breathe a little deeper, show up a little bit more present and grounded in who you are today? And almost like, I'm wondering if we can have this part, like watch almost from the sidelines, because you really don't need it anymore to be so close and and interfering in your life. It's got to be able to sit by and maybe watch you make choices and notice that you're not trapped. Ask it how it feels about that. Are you willing to mm -hmm. observe from the sidelines a little bit more and give me a little bit of space? Yeah. What happens? What's it say? I can try. <laughs> yeah. Say great. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Just invite it to watch you say, Hey, just watch, watch how I live now. I, I might not be perfect, but I'm striving and trying every day to get better, to be healthier, to be a stronger, healthier adult, all those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Says I'll watch. Thank you. And again, thank it thank because it's, it's, of, yeah. Thank you for the role that you've played. Yeah, it's just tensions have been pure and keeping me small. Absolutely. And I think that's in my best interest. Yep. And I'm going to show you that you are going to be able to go have fun, go play, go enjoy others and relax and take a break because eight years old, oof, it's a lot to put on an eight-year-old. You, this part of you does not need to be doing all of this work. It's heavy lifting. It's just not needed. Mm. Mm -hmm. so perfect how's your arm feel a little tingly great a little numb actually things are moving everything's moving perfect so thank that part again and then let it know that you'll be back to check on it soon to check in and check on it awesome thank you for that that was beautiful of course yeah what was a part of yourself that you connected with that you were surprised was in there Oh my God. I've done 20 years of parts work. There have been so many. Here's one of my favorites that I share in a lot of my live events. And um, or what about anything recently too? But go ahead oh, on this one. God. This is a relevant one I want to share. Thanks. But gosh, I mean, I'm always finding parts. I find parts that hate me, that are scared, lots of different inner child parts. But the one 
the one that was so profound, which is why I talk about it a lot, is Feral Michelle, I call her. <laughs> so <laughs> I was, I was, again, remember, I was a rager way back when. And like, again, I didn't rage every single day, but I would look for ways to like release like the tension in my body. And I would like pick fights with like my, you know, my friend's boyfriend. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were antagonistic. Oh yeah, totally. Like I couldn't wait for it. I was like, oh, because it was like a release. It was like a, a pressure cooker releasing steam is how it felt when I could get mad at somebody. Anyway, that was back when I was like teenager and early twenties. And then that that's gone now. But so that's there though. So that, that was a very strong part of me, this angry part. So when I was, I was doing work one day and there was a part of me that was up and she was pissed. I mean, so angry. Anyway, a part of me was angry. So I tapped in. I was like, close my eyes. I was like, okay, who's here? Like who, who's showing up right now? And it was this, it was this, it was me, but the age of 12 and her hair was like in her face and she was drooling and sweating and her clothes were all torn and tattered. And she was like chained to a tree Mm. near this river. And I walked up as the person I was today. And, and she came running up to me and she reminds me of Smeagol from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) You know who that is? Yes, I do. Yeah. You know who that is? That's who she reminded me of, but it was me with hair, like just gross, like hadn't showered it. Yeah. So she, I walk up the woman I am, which was probably 10 years ago now. And then this smart part came up running toward me, spitting and swearing at me and got right in my face, but she was chained to this tree. So it was like a 10 foot long chain. She got in my face and she was like doing one of these. She's like, fuck yeah. And she's screaming at me. I was like, whoa. And I put my head back. I was like, whoa. And I said, okay. And she went off on me. I mean, she just, you know, swearing up a storm. Fuck this, fuck this, fuck that. Yeah, I fucking hate you. You're a piece of shit. It was all of the things, right? They're they're inside of me saying that to me. And I looked at her and from the woman I was, however old I was, I was really solid, just like you just did. And I was like, thank you. I get it. And I came back with, and I love you. Mm. She's like, fuck you. No, you don't. I said, I love you. And I just stood there in the scene in my head and I was so solid and grounded. And I was like, I love you. I love you. I love you. And, and then she spit in my face and then left and she went back around the tree. And I said, and I'll be back to see you tomorrow. And the next day, and this took maybe five or 10 minutes each time I just dropped in and sort of spent time with her. The next day I came back and she came running toward me again, but her hair wasn't so greasy and her face wasn't so dirty and her clothes didn't look so ripped and all that, but she was still angry, but not as angry. So then the next day I came back and all I did was I stood there and I said, I love you. I love you so much. No matter what you say, I'm still going to love you. And I, I'm going to keep beaming love at you. She'd be like, fuck you. Da, da, da. And then she left, you know, ran by the tree again. And I came the next day. So I'm not going to bore you, but it took about a week, but every day, I kept going back a little, bit better. a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. The last day. And she got less angry, less angry. She came running toward me and there was no chain on her little ankle. And she came running toward me. And it was me as a three or four year old in a, like Easter Sunday, little church outfit kind of thing. Like it was precious, this little baby girl. And she came running up to me and she ran in my arms and she hugged me and I started hugging her. And I was like, 
I love you. And she said, and I love you too. I was like, wow. And that's the day I really realized like love really does win. Love wins and love heals all. And these parts of self are just like with yours. And the thing that I want to point out, we all have ideas about what our parts role is, but I believe that when we dropped in or you dropped in around procrastination, it, there are certain things that popped out that surprised you because we know from our head, what I call chin up. Oh, this is, you know, this is, this is what it is. This makes perfect sense to me. Cause my family was like this and this and this, I did the same thing until I started dropping below the chin. Cause the body is the wise part. The body's where the unconscious mind is. And when you go drop below the chin and you get really curious and you open up to the possibilities of what it could be, oof, all of a sudden it's like, wait, where did you come from? Like, I didn't know your purpose. And when you start thanking and loving that part up, transformation happens. So if I were you, for your, if you were my client for your homework, I would say, okay, you know what? Whenever you feel called to do it, maybe tomorrow, the next day, drop back in again and say, hey, I'm here. Have you watched me? Have you noticed? Thank you for all you've done. Can I have a little bit more space? And it might transform. You might think, again, don't go in thinking it's in your arms. It might be in your stomach. Or you might not have anything. It might be gone. And that's okay. That's all. It's all perfect. But we want to dialogue with these parts and let them know how much we appreciate and love them. Even if they're being assholes like my little feral Michelle or mean, they're trying to protect us. They're trying to keep us safe. But they're really, really, they're really old or young and it just doesn't serve us anymore. They don't know that you've grown up. They don't know that. They think you're still eight. This particular one, we got lots in there. So, yeah. And why do, why do you think it is that by, I mean, I guess it is through love. That's how you'd answer it. But through the, through acknowledgement, mm-hmm. of its pure intention that that works in healing. Why, what, what did you say? The acknowledgement of that it, you know, cause I think that for so many of us, we mm-hmm. just shame these parts. We just shame these parts. Yeah. And why is it through acknowledgement and understanding that these parts are willing to, to break away? I don't think it's the acknowledgement and the understanding. I think it's more that we're bringing them into consciousness because they've been running in the unconscious mind, like Groundhog Day. I get up, I got to protect you. I get up, I got to make sure you're safe every day. I got to get up, I got to make sure yourself. And in fact, they don't go to sleep like we do, but in every moment of the day, they're running hard and fast to keep us safe. Absolutely. So it's just that they're sitting in the unconscious mind. So when we start to connect with them through parts work, our whole lives change. Mine did that. And I'm going to say the other thing that occurs to me that did was really profound in my own healing journey would be nervous system regulation because so much of our trauma, you talk about PTSD and trauma, you know, it keeps our nervous system running really hot. I was living most of my life, my earlier life with adrenal fatigue constantly. It's so much constant running, running, running in my inside of me where I live like that less and less and less and less and less, you know, and that's through learning how to regulate myself. Yeah. We were talking in one of my groups last night, we're going through the loving parent guidebook and somebody shared, he's like, I just want a nervous system transplant. I'm like, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I think we can have it honestly. Yeah. So, so what the, were your some, practices that helped you the most? I have done so much with 
you know, different kinds of breath work. I do a lot of body work. I had, and when I lived in Nashville, I had a really amazing, someone that did, that did John Barnes myofascial. So it's not just myofascial massage. It's, there's a technique made by John Barnes. So it's very different than traditional myofascial work, but it's a very intuitive approach where you're going in and reading the fascia intuitively and you're working to release old emotions. Sometimes it's past life stuff. That was amazing. I was doing that weekly again with the breath work with of course the salt baths. I mean, deep breathing, meditation, journaling, spending a lot of time in nature, all of those things and doing per personal work. Like when we clear, per clear something from our past and whether it be we're crying it out or beating the heck out of something like a Bataka bat where we're like pounding the anger we used to have out of us, huge work. But something that's new on the, not really, I think it's here now, but I was gonna say on the horizon is plant our plant medicines. Mm -hmm. For me, those have been, those are like the finishing touches, I would say to my nervous system. Really? Regulation, like profound. So when you said that from your group, the person in your group that said that, I'm like, it's plant medicines that I would say that without a shadow of a doubt, I have seen more people regulate nervous systems in ceremonies than, than years. You know, I've done this. I started years ago, but when I started doing plant medicines, it's like, it was like overnight. I'm like, I feel like a different person. What just happened here? Like, this is crazy. Wow. So, what in particular? Ayahuasca has been probably the biggest nervous system regulator for me and others wow. that I know. I know how many, many times have you done it? I've done two different ceremonies of okay. ayahuasca and someone that I went with recently literally went in and she heard in her ceremony, you know, you, when you, have you done plant, have you done this at all? Okay. So when you go in, you, you have an intention, which of course it's our little ego intention or higher self. It doesn't matter because when you go in there and you work with a plant medicine, which is the most beautiful spiritual sort of approach to this kind of thing, you know, the, the plants will say to you, we're going to do this instead. So the person, one of the people that I was with said, they said, they heard, we're going to work on your nervous system and it's going to take nine hours and we're going to start right now. And you're not going to do anything else. And her body literally was like a baby rocking for about six or seven hours. And the next day it was like completely new person. And that was months and months ago. And it has, and it has held so these aren't things that you do once and then in a week they're, they're gone, but you've got to continue to do something. the other work. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, I was going to say, you've got to, you know, a lot of people think that a plant, that plant medicines, and I was so against this. I am not, I don't drink alcohol. I'm not a drug person. I used to be in high school and college, but not, a, not at all anymore. And I was terrified of plant medicines. When people started talking about mushrooms, I was like, I didn't do those in college. I'm certainly not going to do them now. I was anti, anti, anti 10 years ago. Because in therapy world, and even in friend circles, I started hearing about it. I was mm -hmm. anti against it 100%. But the more I started researching it and really deeply looking into them as a therapy, not as recreational, I'm going to go out and trip on mushrooms at the concert on Saturday night. Yes. When I've done um, psilocybin, it's been with a psychologist, one-on-one, -on -one, blindfold, you know, you have the eye shades on with the music from Johns Hopkins playing and some of the most beautiful experiences of my life there too. So in healing, like profound healing, 10 years of therapy and, you know, an evening sort of healing, but there it's a big medicine. But the most important thing, when people say to me, plant medicines didn't work for me, it's not a pill that you take. It's yep. not like you're going in 
and you're popping an Advil and your headache's gone, or you're going to go in and let me do ayahuasca or mushrooms or MDMA or whatever the heck you want to pick. And it's gone the next day. The healing happens with integration. So yes, to do in personal work, but continuing work, but the integration is when you, you get so many incredible messages during a journey, you got to then journal. You've got to work with someone to integrate all the stuff you heard. And if you're working with the nervous system, it's like, how are you going to continue that? So it holds, because if you go back to the life you had before, then you're going to go back to the life you had before. Right. And nothing's going to change. You've got a, it's a beautiful gift that you get using these plants. So yeah. What are your I thoughts thought, on I mean, people that are in, I mean, cause I'm, I've been sober for 15 years. Yeah. You know, I've thought about it. Like, is it, I know it's all about going in with intention, my concern is, it, is it my disease trying to sneak in through the back door? Yeah, I, I'm doing a, actually a, on my podcast this week, I've got Matt Zeman. I've done a few shows on, on the adult share with people that know a heck of a lot about these things. And there's someone coming out this week. His name is Matt Zeman. Check okay. him out. He I would love to. There's a lot of research that he's done on this neurological research. So he will, he talks about addiction. This is uh -huh. that, this is what's so crazy. These are, again, you can become addicted to the experience, but the drugs themselves are non-addictive. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. The plants are not, these are plants. They're non-addictive, yeah. right? Again, and we go into it deep on, on the show, but I would, anyone listening, check out Matt Zeman, but there's so many, I'm trying to think of, I've had a bunch of people on Dr. David Rabin, um, he's been on, we talked about ketamine. He, he is a psychiatrist and he does ket ketamine treatments long distance, hmm. but there's so many, there are ketamine centers all around now, but that's, what's so beautiful. In fact, I'm trying to think which one it is, is it Bufo that mm. actually is one that's that a bullfrog clears, thing. Yeah. That clears addiction. No bodega. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to think of what it's called, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's it. I begin. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I, I begin. Sorry. That's the one where actually, if you are an addict, you can go and man, I've seen studies on this and documentaries on this it's pretty profound. So they're, they're not typical. These are, this is not like doing cocaine or I would even, I wouldn't even say it's like doing pot, which I used to smoke a lot of that in college, but this is nothing like it. Mm -hmm. This is nothing like it. It's a beautiful spiritual experience that you have. Again, I am not I'm an expert in what I've done. So anyone that's even thinking about these as a full disclaimer, research it yourself. There's so much beautiful research on, on that now, on them all right now. I mean, more coming and they're, you know, they're decriminalized out in, I think, Oregon and California and it's coming. We I mean, were going to be using the them. Research is practice. profound. Oh, it's profound. It's unbelievable. Google 60 minutes psilocybin, what they've done unbelievable. And that was like with Anderson Cooper. This is from four or five years ago. It was on 60 minutes and they were up in Johns Hopkins with like, I remember this guy that was an alcoholic drinking like 30 vodkas a day and literally did psilocybin, I think once or twice it was his cravings were hundred percent gone. Again, I'm not going to say it's one, you know, that it's great for everybody, do your research. I did years of research. And this is again, when not everyone was talking about it, it was very underground. Now every, you know, everyone's talking about it now, but yeah, they're really powerful, but they're also, they're plants. <laughs> they're not, it's not like doing cocaine or anything like that. I think about drugs 
they drugs and even alcohol, right? You either feel high or you feel low. Like you're either really high or you're really low with, with a drug, with a two drug plant medicines. Now, I, now that I've done them, it, I realize what the term journey is. You're not high and you're not low. You're kind of going sideways. It's mm-hmm. a journey. You're not high or low. You're going this way, which is a little different. So anyway, do your no, research. I think it's profound. It's interesting to hear you talk about ayahuasca. Cause I feel like that's one where I've not necessarily heard a lot of people talk about it being like super profound. Man, I remember hearing when Mike Tyson was on Joe Rogan, he's like, I just kept going back for more. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I don't know what he means, but like with ayahuasca, you go up for numerous pours. They can go up for three or four pours. No, he meant, he meant, he he kept oh, go going, back flying back down, doing one after another, and it became a little bit addictive for him. Well, but no. it's addictive because here's what's addictive. Here's why I love, there's a part of me that's like, I love doing some of these journeys because- of the insights you, yeah, the insights. And you really have this feeling that you're merging with God. Mm-hmm. It's a spiritual experience. It is, you know, we can read about God and watch shows on God and all this, but when you do something like this, you're breaking through this illusion that we live in. And you're literally with the most unconditionally loving. Now, sometimes it's a hard journey. You know, mm-hmm. I worked with, I've sat with many people that are clear talk about trauma. Like sometimes you walk back through it, but then you walk through it and it's done. It's done. So you can either do it in therapy for years and go through it, or you can do it where you're re-experiencing a lot of what you experience and it's painful, but it's six hours and then you're done or four or five hours. Again, definitely not saying it's one size fits all. It's not for everybody, but do your research. And then people go, oh, do you throw up? Do you poop? All this stuff. It's like, I don't know of anyone that's ever pooped and I, some people do, but it's a purge. It's not a vomit like you would think because nobody's eating food from noon on. <laughs> like it's like in your ceremonies at seven, your stomach's empty. So there's nothing in there. It's actually a purging, they say, of trauma, of old stuff, old energy. So it's not really a purge like you would think it's a purge. So. Yeah. I've had a desire to do it. Like I have a desire to have a a profound spiritual experience and that's what really draws me to it. But it is the feel like, again, like, is this somehow my addiction trying to sneak its way in through the back door? But my, I mean, I, my viewpoint has just changed so much on all of this in the past few years, especially like when it comes to 12 step and Mm -hmm. I try to I try to, you know, bring that up whenever I'm in meetings, just especially like as I was in a meeting the other day and just as it relates to like character defects, like are these really character defects or are these really just coping mechanisms that were developed kids? And is it really fair to call them character defects? To me, that seems a little bit shaming and gaslighting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, so you're going to have Matt on your podcast this week is the, or you're interviewing him or it's the episode that's coming out this week. No, no, no. It's the episode that's actually coming out like this next week. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, that'll be awesome. Maybe I can have him on mine too. This has been amazing. You should really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do and all the podcasts that you put out there. And thank you. Um, grateful to to have crossed paths. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm